This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 29th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this past week brought the news that the White House COVID team will shut down operations sometime around the time that the public health emergency ends in May. So before we talk about some recent research, what does this shutdown mean for the epidemic? Steve, this office at the White House has always been something of an unusual animal. For most infectious diseases, responsibilities are distributed among a number of federal and state agencies. For example, the NIH usually takes the lead on basic and clinical science. The CDC and state health departments are responsible for monitoring and controlling transmission, and the CDC helps set guidelines for drugs and vaccines. And the FDA approves, and in some cases, helps encourage the development of new diagnostics, treatments, and preventive measures. This has largely remained true during the COVID outbreak, although additional agencies, such as BARDA, played a big role in developing vaccines. But as we were told by Ashish Jha when we had him as a guest on the podcast earlier, because of the magnitude of this crisis, it's been useful to have a coordinator of all of the responses occurring in different agencies. I think this has had varying utility. It has helped at times to set uniform policies, but because of the close association with the White House, it's also been an opportunity to manipulate public health messaging in a way that wasn't always helpful. It does seem that disbanding this office is an important marker of where things stand now. It's important to remember that COVID-19 remains a major illness with something on the order of a couple of thousand deaths each week in the US. However, it's not the same crisis that it once was. We have developed interventions that are useful for preventing and treating disease, although these are still not being used optimally. The high level of immunity present in the population right now means that fewer people are getting serious disease even when transmission rates are relatively high. And at least here in Massachusetts, the rate of disease transmission is at the lowest level it's been since last summer. Because of the end of the emergency, many agencies will not have the kind of flexibility they've had in the past, so policy changes are likely to occur much more slowly. So Eric and Steve, as we have discussed, and Eric, as you just pointed out, what has gone on over the last three years has been broad cooperation across very large federal agencies. This has been difficult and challenging at times, but it has allowed a coordination of response to bring forward tremendous advances. You point out, Eric, advances in diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines. By facing such an unprecedented challenge, this substantial federal investment has enabled us to transform SARS-CoV, COVID, from the devastating illness it was to now a manageable respiratory virus for the most part. What will be challenging as we go forward, and there is less investment in this response, may have a diminution of access to testing, reporting of the results of testing, and a difficulty in discerning illness associated with SARS-CoV-2 versus that which is due to SARS-CoV-2. So I think we will have to think carefully as we go forward how well we understand transmission and disease associated with COVID-19. From a different perspective, I think that what we have learned with our response to COVID-19 is what we can do quickly when we are focused as a community across all elements of the community, from the investment to the regulatory, to the clinical studies, to the actual implementation across society. And it shows what can be done. 
we have to think about how we want to take these lessons forward as we try to tackle all the other diseases that our patients face, our loved ones face. And I hope we do learn some lessons here about what we can do as society and the biomedical enterprise if we do put our collective mind together in response. Whether or not COVID-19 should remain a special disease, or we need to think about it as we think about disease in general, and then apply equal vigor in how we control and ameliorate the consequences. Lindsay, I think it's important to remember that the message here isn't that COVID-19 has gone away. The management of COVID-19 is changing. That has to happen at some point, and now is the point that's been chosen. But There's no change in the fundamental biology. There's no change in disease transmission. There's no change in the understanding of the disease. And of course, lots more that we need to learn. So this is a marker of some progress, but it's not over. The end of the public health emergency may also mean the end to emergency use authorizations in the United States. Lindsay, you co-wrote a perspective article on the topic that was published this week. So what are the implications? So, Steve, I think what you raise is how do we as a global community and how do we as a domestic community respond to public health emergencies and how do we define such entities? Three years ago, as we all know, a public health emergency of international concern, a PHEC, was declared by WHO, the World Health Organization. In reflection to this, as disease spread rapidly around the globe, the U.S. issued two different statutory authorities, and as we describe in the perspective, Section 564, Section 319, but I think it's less important the exact sections as much as there are regulations which allow HHS, Health and Human Services, to give additional authorities to critical public health infrastructure to allow a rapid response. And I think we've learned a lot from this. The Emergency Use Authorization, EUA, is a product of this type of statutory authority, which allows the FDA and other agencies to respond in a more nimble fashion to a public health threat. And an infectious disease like SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, spread with such rapidity across the nation, across the world, that we needed to be able to respond equally quickly. And these statutory authorities are an important element of that. What evolves is when the statutory authority is withdrawn or in part withdrawn, what does that mean for development of new technologies in response and the application and deployment of these technologies in the community? So post the resolution of the public health emergency, there still will be statutory authority for the FDA and other federal agencies to allow access to emergency use authorization medications and diagnostics. However, there will need to be a process for these interventions to either obtain full approval or be withdrawn. And that will be worked out with the different proprietary entities and the agency. So we will continue to have access to many of the interventions that we're used to and that we use daily in our medical practice and our personal use to decrease risk of acquiring or spreading COVID or to treat it early. But we will see these therapies either obtain full approval or be withdrawn. I think that we need to think about the lessons we've learned from this process, because some of the medications that were authorized early may not have had the evidentiary base that we would like. 
and others, some feel, took too long. So there are a lot of learnings that we need to do as a community to understand how we improve the process of gaining access to interventions that can improve health while maintaining the high bar to know safety and efficacy, which is the foundation of our confidence in the medical system. So a lot has been learned, a lot we need to learn, and I think there are lessons here that we need to take forward. I also think on another side, which we'll have to pay attention to, is this authority also allows financial support for response to the public health emergency. And that financial support, be it in the accessibility to diagnostics or treatments, may change how we can access these therapies, both as patients and as we deploy them as providers. Because we all know when there are financial barriers, it impedes the use of therapies. So I think, Steve, there are a lot of crisscrossing implications of the withdrawal of the public health emergency. And Eric, as you said, there comes a time where we need to move past the public health emergency but there are very real consequences as a community we're going to have to deal with. Lindsay, I have a question for you. You've talked a lot about existing therapies and existing interventions and what's going to happen to them. What does this mean for the next treatment or the next vaccine that's out there? They have been considered on these very expedited bases. Is that going to continue to be available? So Eric, I think that's a very important side of this equation. How we take care of our patients today is paramount. But as you raise the issue, how do we develop the new therapies that can help solve the current problems in responding to COVID? And I think that will be a real challenge because the EUA pathway will not exist indefinitely and, in fact, likely has a short shelf life. That will change the regulatory authority that the agency, the FDA, has in how it can approve new therapies. And I think we will see more discussion and guidance from them as to what are the pathways for clinical development. But it will be a higher bar. And it likely should be because the characteristics of COVID-19 have changed from three years ago. Getting back to learning, we're still learning about how to implement some of the tools that have been developed over the past three years. For example, we recently published a study of the usefulness of testing for COVID-19 in skilled nursing facilities. What was the study and what did we learn? The study was designed to look at whether testing of staff members could protect residents of the SNFs from COVID-19. The investigators looked at SNFs during a few different periods before vaccines became available and before and after the appearance of the Omicron variants. The researchers drew on a database that mandates deposition of data that includes COVID-19 cases and deaths and another database with information on individual employees. They then looked at the testing volume of each facility during weeks in which there were no cases of COVID-19 to define a relative testing rate of staff members. Remember, this is staff members, not residents. They controlled for a number of variables, including vaccination rates and countywide effects. The primary outcome was the number of COVID-19 cases and deaths among residents. The researchers found that more testing of staff was associated with fewer cases of COVID-19 among residents. This was particularly true before vaccines became available. Lower rates of disease were associated with fewer COVID-19-related deaths. Point-of-care tests with rapid results produced lower resident deaths than those with slower turnaround times. This is an interesting study as it strongly suggests that testing is a very valuable strategy for preventing transmission 
in these semi-closed settings. It's important to remember, however, that this is an observational study and there was more testing in facilities with higher quality ratings. Thus, factors in addition to testing might play a role in the lower rates of disease transmission that we're seeing. So, Eric, I think that the concept of test and treat or test and isolate is a tried and true one in infectious diseases. However, one needs to understand the value in the setting one is applying it, which means we understand the transmission dynamics of the pathogen and the consequences of illness. In the setting of a skilled nursing facility, one needs to think about the transmission dynamics and where the benefits are to best understand where deploying this type of resource would add value. We also need to think about how this may play for other respiratory viruses like influenza as a model of decreasing outbreaks of severe illness in closed communities that are more vulnerable. Encouraging data, and as you said, Eric, the observational nature requires an understanding of the design weaknesses. I'd like to briefly discuss a second study that isn't really a COVID study at all. For a long time, it's been unclear whether there's a role for glucocorticoids in treating severe community-acquired pneumonia. In COVID, the answer from early clinical trials was fairly clear. Glucocorticoids decrease the rate of death in severe infections. So how well does this translate to other causes of pneumonia? Well, last week we published a randomized controlled trial that attempted to answer that question. This was a multi-center trial in France where patients with severe pneumonia of any cause were randomized to receive hydrocortisone or placebo in addition to standard of care therapy. The primary outcome was death from any cause within 28 days. Almost 800 patients were included, and the trial was stopped at a planned secondary interim analysis for efficacy. At that point, there were 25 deaths in the hydrocortisone group and 47 deaths among those who received placebo. So in this trial, there was a benefit to hydrocortisone. So that sounds good, but the answer might not be so simple. A recent trial in the U.S. that was performed in VA hospitals concluded that there was no benefit of treating patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia with methylprednisolone. There were several differences along with the different agent, and those included the sex of the participants and the likely pathogens that led to hospitalization. The bottom line is that while this new study provides evidence of efficacy, it's going to take more work to try to determine who will benefit. Thus, it's not clear that we're going to be able to generalize from our considerable experience with COVID-19 to other causes of pneumonia. Eric, as you noted, this is a complex area to study. The use of glucocorticoids for treating pneumonia, infectious pneumonia, is highly controversial and depends on many key factors. The host, the pathogen, the timing and illness, the dose duration of the agent used, likely related to where the patient is in the pathogenesis of their illness. And I think this is analogous, as you point out, to COVID-19, where the benefits of dexamethasone were demonstrated in individuals who had mild to moderate COVID-19. Its use decreased the risk of progression to severe respiratory illness. This was in healthy community dwellers. This was not in immunocompromised patients. In those who had mild illness, benefit was not seen. And I think we have seen some consequences of the use of glucocorticoids in the treatment of COVID-19 that have gone beyond the data in the landmark study. So even within COVID-19, the use of glucocorticoids is complicated 
but we do have clear data where it may be beneficial. Extending it to pneumonia in general has been very difficult and has been an area of study for decades with conflicting results, as you pointed out. In addition, when we look at the emergency use authorizations and the approvals which have emerged in our COVID therapeutics, the agency and the clinical research community, Eric, have never lowered the safety bar. Safety has always been the same across all the different studies. The difference is the level of efficacy needed to authorize or to achieve full approval. Therefore, as we go forward, the agency will need to look carefully at what is the efficacy bar when we're not in a public health emergency, and therefore, stronger data is likely to be required to achieve full approval versus access via emergency use authorization. And that will be a vigorous debate over the near term as we as a community come to terms with what the level of efficacy needed to allow drug development to continue to go forward. Lindsay, I think it's interesting that this is such a fundamental question that people have asked for such a long time, and we still don't have an answer, whereas we got answers pretty quickly in the setting of COVID-19. So what's the difference? Why do we know the answer in COVID-19 with the caveats that you just mentioned? And we don't for pneumonia that we've been treating for decades in the ICU. I think there are a few differences. First off, there are so many cases of COVID-19 occurring at once that it was practical to have these large studies. And as you said, when people have departed from the recommendations and used, for example, glucocorticoids in outpatients or for extended period of time, we've seen the kinds of issues that can be seen with lots of glucocorticoid use. In particular, in some countries, there have been outbreaks of mucormycosis occurring in diabetics who got glucocorticoids in many cases without following the proper indications. But pneumonia occurs all the time, is multifactorial, occurs in people with many other comorbidities oftentimes, and that creates a much more heterogeneous population. So I think the simple answer is that given the heterogeneity, there's no one answer, and we are going to try to have to identify subgroups that might be responding. Studies like the one we just published suggest that those subgroups do exist, and perhaps they're quite large, large enough to give an effect size in a trial like this that's pretty substantial. But the fact that other studies have reached other conclusions suggests that it's not so simple. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.